Hello, and welcome to People of Passion, the program where we meet individuals who are actively pursuing their dreams and finding fulfillment. I'm your host, Josh Ellison, and today we have artist Eric Drummond in the studio to share his passion with us. So, Eric, I want to welcome you to the first episode of People of Passion. I'm very flattered to be here. I'm nervous, but I'm also very excited. That's right. We're just <laughs> we're just having a conversation here. Sweet. Yeah. So, your thing is art. Yeah. Go in a bit of detail about what kind of art you're into right now. Oh, I mean, it's hard to go in like it's hard to go into like what I'm into now without referencing what I've. I think ever since I was the eight, like ever since I was a kid, I was drawing. Yeah, start and, at the at the beginning. At the beginning, yeah, <laughs> in the beginning. Um, my brother, my older brother, drew a lot, and he drew like animals and things like that. And so I think I kind of got into it because of him. And I love drawing like superheroes and like you know like Pokemon and like the typical stuff that you were drawing as like an early '90s kid. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, after a while, it you know, it, it, the, the common theme I remember through all the things that I was drawing was that I was drawing people, like people, like, like physical things that you could look at. And, um, it wasn't until my grandfather, who's Italian, uh, he gave me a book on Michelangelo and I was like, oh my God, there's people that made this stuff, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, cause I, you know, as a kid and you, like when you're a kid and you're into art, you always hear like the the Ninja Turtle names, you know, like Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, Donatello. you know, yeah. and you're just like, oh yeah, they were artists in the past and you never really look at what they did. But then I was shown it because of my grandfather, the wonderful man that he is. And uh, yeah, I was blown away. Like seeing like, like a photo of the statue of David. I was just like, this is, I don't know why it clicked in my head, but I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I want to make stuff like this. And so ever since I was about 14, <clears throat> I made it a personal goal of mine because ever since I got that book, I, I just, I would research these artists and what they did, how they trained, where they trained. And the common thread with the artists that I really liked, like Leonardo and Michelangelo, that they trained and learned in Florence. And so I made it a goal for myself at 14. I was like, I'm going to learn art in Florence. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I'm just going to get there. And so high school was was cool and i mean the art classes in high school like they're not really art classes in my opinion mm-hmm. uh they're kind of like here's a project and go make something based on it and what's sad is that even the college courses are kind of similar to like to that here but that's a different topic but uh i went to the university of well for art history for about two years uh because i i love art history as well i love reading about history in general um you can find so many parallels between what happens now and what happens, what happened then. And, it, and I think that's, those are such, <clears throat> when people say history repeats itself, it's, it's such a true thing. And so uh, I studied art history at the University of Guelph for two years. And then I went to, uh, I did a studio course at Fanshawe. And um, I then had a portfolio to apply to the Florence Academy of Art. And <laughs> I think I was at a, I think we were 32 students that got accepted that year and I was one of them. And wow. I remember, yeah, I was, I was, I flipped out when I, yeah. I got the email in like February and nobody was home. I was home alone and, uh, I like jumped out of my bed and I was like running around the house and I was like, there's nobody I can tell right now. And so I like, at, at that point too, I was like sitting in my bed and I was texting a couple of my friends in a group chat and I sent them the email and I was like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, this is happening. And so, uh, yeah, it was one of the happiest days of my life. And uh, 
my parents, I think any parent that has a child that is like, I want to be an artist. They're just like, huh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. What are we going to do with this? You know? And, uh, I, I'm, I think I'm really lucky in terms of having such a great family that supported me and wanted me to, to try and to do this, you know? And I think it came through also like my dad's from Portugal and my mom's Italian. So I think it came through the, the cultures that I was raised in as well. So, uh, yeah. Is your family artistic? No. I mean, like, yes and no. Like, my, I know my grandmother on my dad's side. I didn't know her very well. On my dad's side, she was a seamstress, and she made all her own dresses. And, I, like, to me, that's very creative, and that's very artistic. And then my dad told me he liked to, to draw a bit when he was a kid. And I think most kids, they draw. You know, they, they do some form of drawing mm -hmm. and stuff like that as a form of, like, brainstorming or putting things down on paper. And then they transfer that into other outlets and, and mediums. But uh, no, my mom, my mom never drew. I think I got the kind of the passion for looking at art and looking at history and researching that kind of stuff from my grandfather on my mom's side. I was very close with him. Uh, he's actually, he's my grandfather and he's also my godfather. And um, we would, I would go on walks with him all the time and we, he would talk to me about the Roman Empire and he would talk to me about his time as a child and in Italy, like growing up during, you know, like fascist Italy, which was like insane. Mm -hmm. He would tell me incredible stories about what he saw as a, as a child in like a small village in Italy. And, uh, and yeah, he was, he had a passion for history. He loved to read. And I think he kind of imparted that onto me, uh, like not knowingly. I don't think he was like, read, 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 <laughs> you know, but he was, it was something that because I admired him so much. I wanted to do things like him as well. Mm -hmm. And so he's definitely a huge role model for me. But uh, no, I don't think anybody, like my brother drew, but that was about it. I think I'm the only one. And everybody, uh, it's funny, my aunts and uncles, they're just like, what, like nobody else draws or paints. <laughs> like why you? And it's, it's, it's a funny thing, but they're, they're super supportive and they're super happy about it. So it's good. Take me back to something you said um, yeah, because well, when you were first introduced to the statue of David, yeah, you know that's a sculpture of a person, and so the yeah. Renaissance focuses a lot on drawing people. Yeah, doing. Um, why is that? The human form is was a, a huge tool for language back then, because uh, people didn't read. You know, uh, so well, not all people. I mean, the printing press was developed. You know around that time, but it wasn't, it wasn't until, you know, before that it was like people saw, used images as a way to be informed. And so you could go back, like talking about like, <laughs> like the, the role of the human figure in, in art, you could go back, you know, to the ancient Greeks. And that's essentially where my training, like the lineage of my training in Florence comes from, because all these canons that we learn are from, are from the Greeks, which is insane. When you think about it, that's mind blowing to think that people, back then so far away from now with so little were able to develop and see the way that they saw and these things hold up now like they went into like these these ideas and these these uh tools that they developed and how human beings are used in representational form it trickles into cinema it trickles into dance it trickles into every facet of art and so uh with the Renaissance, they 
they revitalized the Greek tradition because art went through a phase of, of you know, Gothic and Byzantium and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't so much that the human figure was neglected. It was the idealization and the, the idea of how human beings are in, in itself a divine thing uh, was revitalized in the Renaissance. And I think with artists like Michelangelo, they use the human form in, in revolutionary ways in terms of design, in terms of composition, in terms of how it can be represented in art. I mean, he if you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, you have human figures that are almost a part of the architecture of what he's painted, which had never been done before. Where you, And you can go back to like Giotto with the Arena Chapel, and he's using... F- uh, figurative art to, to tell stories of, you know, the Bible and things like that so that people could look at the walls and say, oh, that's how that happened and so on and so forth. So, I mean, you, like you could have a whole other podcast about why people are why in people art. are the subject. Yeah, yeah, and people are the subject, you know, well, and I mean, it's changed over the years so much. We are self-conscious, mm. which is what sets us apart from other creatures. Oh, yeah, creatures, for sure. You know? We so know we exist. We know we exist. Yeah. And so we know we're going to die. Mortality as a subject is covered in art. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, when you when you talk about... It's interesting because we'd have these conversations a lot when we were studying, and is that the artist, the, the, the artist self, or the person that is the artist, it will, will die eventually. But the work is... The work and the name keeps going. If, you know, you're one of those seminal artists or like generational artists, which I think when everybody who takes up art selfishly wants to be, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's anybody that that goes into art and is like, yeah, you know, I want to just be like a low key average, you know, <laughs> like there are people that work that way or they, they work for the sake of working, like work for the sake of art. But there's nobody I don't think that you could come across and be like, hey, you know, if you want to be remembered for 500 years from now, would you want to be? They'd be like, yeah, for the work I make, for sure, you know. Um, so I think, yeah, like being conscious of that is, uh, it's a huge role in, you know, like how people paint portraits, how people represent, I mean, look at the, like, look at the Spanish royalty and how they interacted with like a painter like Velasquez. They had a private court painter that would just paint them and represent them in their ideal self. And these people weren't like the most pretty looking people, like generations of like incest, incest and things like that have like, you know, kind of mutilated their physical self. But Velasquez is painting them in these kind of divine, beautiful way so that they're just remembered. That's what they're remembered as for generations later. We don't have photos of like King Philip and his kids and things like that. We have the paintings by Velasquez, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the four phases Art went through the Gothic and the Renaissance, and uh, yeah, can you elaborate on those? Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a savant on like the Gothic and the Byzantine kind of art forms, but they they focused a lot on iconography and and um, what's that? The, the like the iconography is like you know like a saint will be pay, placed in this place for this purpose to represent this thing, and they're kind of a general human figure they're not like there's no specificity to their features or to the like they'll have things that identify themselves as this saint like symbols and things like that yeah but there's no um inquiry into you know the the like 
how specific the bridge of the nose is or like the mouth or like the eyes or anything like Twist that. Just that way a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, or like the, I guess it comes through like what they're wearing and what they're holding and, uh, whether or not they have like a gold halo around, like things like, I'm being props, very general. Yeah. Like I'm, they be, look I'm being average. Yeah. They're yeah. icons, right? Okay. They're not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm being very general right now. And I, I'm sure if there's any art, art history major listening to this, they're just <laughs> like, oh my God, dude, what are you saying? But that's gothic. But that's, that's gothic and Byzantine kind of art. And what's really interesting about that kind of art is the artists working they never signed their work. They didn't attribute their work to themselves because the general philosophy of that time was I'm working through, like God is working through me. So therefore this work is not mine, it's God's. Mm. And that's a huge turning point when we get to the Renaissance because artists start signing their work. And this idea of humanism, start, the philosophy of humanism starts mm -hmm. arising and people are becoming more conscious of themselves and saying, no, 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 no. We're, we can be faithful people, but we are capable, we as human beings are capable of so much. And that's when you get like these hugely, this re revitalization of the Greeks because the Greeks idealize the human form. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when you go back and you start seeing like, you know, if we're going to use Michelangelo's David, right? Like this is a human being. This is the David, right? This is David from the Bible. And it's a hugely symbolic pose because he's about to face Goliath. It's before he even, like he has the stone in his hand and he's about to put it in the sling that's over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And this was during a political climate in Florence where, you know, they're being attacked by rival city-states and, you know, David's facing down his giant enemy. It's like Florence facing down their enemy. So was, this was like seminal for not only him to represent the city in this man, in this really idealized, you know, young boy. Because no young man looks like that. Oh, you know? yeah, he's you know? shredded. He's absolutely, yeah, he's, he's like every form of his body is is so considered, you know, and the articulations in the neck and the brow. And there's a wonderful sense of specificity in who he is, but also how his features are designed and how the hair is designed and how his hands are designed and articulated. He symbolizes it, more than what he actually exactly. was. He's, he is a triumph of of humanity, you know, he's a hero. And that would never happen in Gothic art. Gothic art is much more, it's selfless in a way, but it's also very devoid of, you're, you're not as conscious of what, what people are. It's more about the symbol. It's not about the person. And uh, I think that's the huge difference when you have that transition. And that's a huge jumping point. Like when everyone, everyone, I don't think there's many people that study history that overlook the Renaissance. The Rena that's a huge revelation for us as a species to be conscious of, no, 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 we're capable of making great things. And then mm -hmm. the, you start getting that through architecture and music and, you know, the enlightenment. And it's, it's phenomenal to read about, especially how it affected art because art usually is a reflection of society at the time. And so when you have all these works happening that are like that, it's, it's, big changes were happening to people. Do you think that, because you said that art is a reflection of society. Yeah, for the most part. Is that the main role that you think it has? No. I think, it's, uh, this, is where, this is where we get into the like, what is art? Yeah. You know, topic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this topic is so hard to, I'm young, I'm 27, and I think my opinions on art are going to change as I grow older. But right now, I don't think art has a defined, like, 
I can't speak for art as a whole, mm-hmm. especially like with what I make. I think I can speak for my art. I don't think my art should reflect, it shouldn't have a political agenda or it shouldn't have um, a specific kind of undertone throughout my entire life. I think my art should always be changing and it's the message that you receive should be kind of up to the viewer. I think great art, great figurative art is a conversation. I think when you look at a good portrait or you look at a good painting of, excuse me, painting of, you know, a multifigural composition of like a battle scene or whatever, what you're experiencing as the viewer is what makes it art. So if I can elaborate on that. Please. Um, there was recently a Banksy that sold at Sotheby for about 30 million. It was auctioned at 30 million. And it was, do you know who Banksy is? No. Banksy's a contemporary artist. He was, he was predominantly, he became really famous because he made these really politically charged graffiti art. You know, like there's a really famous stencil of like the, the riot, uh, the protester throwing uh, a bouquet of roses. I don't know if you've ever seen that image. I have, And then yeah. there's the, the image of like uh, a starving child being like walking down the road holding hands with Mickey Mouse and Ronald McDonald. Like these kind of works that are like, wow. yeah, you know, like, you, you, yeah. like they really strike a chord politically, right? And um, he sold he, his most recent painting. I don't know if it's his most recent, but a painting of his recently auctioned for 30 million. And it was a painting of the British Parliament. Yeah, the British Parliament. And it was, instead of people, it was all monkeys. Ooh, that's deep. <laughs> yeah, but like the 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 initial reaction, you see the reaction that you had was, it was very, like you're just like, it clicked immediately where you're just like, ah, like yeah. the monkeys, parliament, all that kind of stuff. And it's very face value. And I'm not saying that's bad or anything like that or that I don't agree with it. I mean, that's like writing a really, really good one-liner. You know, that's... For for me and what I think of art as a language, I'm not saying that's bad either. It's a really good one-liner. It's like, bang, as soon as you look at it, you know what it is. For me, I don't want my art to be like that. I want my art to be a story. It needs to be, it needs to manifest over time the longer you look at it. So again, if I can give an example is I had an exhibition maybe two, two weeks, three weeks now, early October. And um I was there for the opening of it. It was a group exhibition. And I had maybe like three portraits, a couple head studies and a still life and a figure drawing hung up. And because I was there, people would come up to me and they would say, oh, you're Eric, you're the artist. And, you know, I'd meet them and they'd say, who's that person? Or who's that person that you painted? Because I didn't title them anything. I titled them their names. So like there was a painting of a girl that I knew named Miriam and I, the title was Miriam. Mm-hmm. And she went, this person asked me, she's like, who's she? And so I was like, oh, she's so-and-so. And that, I think, is a phenomenal reaction because if we take me out of the situation, me as the artist out of that gallery, and that person goes into the gallery to see it, they look at it and they go, who is Miriam? But I'm not there to answer it. So they start to answer it. Okay. You know, and they start to look at the painting, how she's sitting, how she's looking, what's the articulation of her brow, her mouth, everything. And all the information that I'm selecting and that I'm choosing to put down on the canvas is an indication of me talking to the viewer about who this person is. And they formulate the person, which I think is beautiful. That's a conversation. That's what art should be, in my opinion. 
And again, I'm not like bashing on Banksy or anything. I think what he makes is phenomenal because it has that shock value where mm -hmm. you're just like, whoa, you know, like that's so poignant. But you don't need to sit with it. Yeah, there's no, yeah, exactly. You're not gonna, you're gonna look at the image and you go, oh, I got it. But that's, that's it. You know, I want it. I want my, my work to be more, you know, and I want the, the technical aspect of my work to kind of indicate to you what it is I'm feeling or who it is I'm painting during that time. Cause I work with models from life and, um, yeah, so that was an interesting, that's, it's a good question. I mean, right now that's what I would want my art to be. I don't think it has to be necessarily like, I don't think I have to be painting about social issues or anything like that. I want to paint people. And I think that's honest. I think art should first and foremost be artist or honest because there is such thing as harmful art. And I think when you're honest with what you're trying to translate, what you see, then it comes through with how a viewer experiences it. When you look at a Rembrandt, the paint itself, the physical manipulation of the paint is its own language and it's an, it's its own sensory experience. And I think that's why he's such a seminal artist is because he's able to manipulate paint in a way that your eye is like, wait, it gets thicker at the top of certain forms. Like it would, if I were to like go touch a forehead, you know, and that is like a tangible experience for your eye to experience. Hmm. which I think is so phenomenal. Like that's, that goes beyond having to say something straight to your face. That goes, that goes, that's, that's like reading a good book, you know, and it, it's, you get involved in the characters and the story and it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper the more you look at it. And I think that for me is the best kind of art. Earlier you were talking about how everybody in the art field wants to be, you know, great. Everybody wants to be remembered. Mm -hmm. What is it exactly that you think it takes to, oh, to be that, <laughs> to be one of the greats? Oh, man. It's I, more, if I knew, I'd be it, you, you know? <laughs> it's more than just good craftsmanship. Oh, yeah. I, I think. Yeah. Because um, I think art, because um, same with music, it's about yeah. capturing emotion and what, oh, yeah. what you're trying to provoke in the observer, the listener, yeah, the, yeah. the viewer, um, what kind of uh, feeling you're trying to evoke in, yeah. um, in that circumstance. So what do you think? I think you can't, like, there has to be, I mean, I don't want to say the word reaction because that in, like, that goes against what I was basically just saying. I think there has to be something for the viewer to take away for like, if I go into a painting and I think, oh, this painting has to be like the person that sees this has to feel sad, then it's not honest because I'm painting the work and the creative process of making the work has this undertone of it constantly. And that's not honest to the moment of which I'm working, you know? Um, I think to be a great artist, you have to have a variety. I think being being knowledgeable is like the first thing. You have to be well-read. I think you have to be, you have to know, you have to know art history, I think, to be a great artist. Because when you get into scenarios like these where people ask you, you can't just talk out of your ass. I think you have to, you have to be knowledgeable. It's like, it's like if you go to a doctor and you say, what makes you a great doctor? It's like, well, he studied for years, you know, and he, he knows every inch of his profession. 
it's not like he just picked up a scalpel and was like, oh, I'm a brain surgeon now. Yeah. There's no way. I think you have to be, in art, it shouldn't be any different than any other discipline. I think, like, when you when you look at the the French academies in the 19th century under Jerome, this is where, like, this is where the Florence Academy, like, directly, our lineage directly comes from them. When you look at them, artists used to go to school for nine years, which is longer than lawyers. Mm-hmm. That's wow. how, like, seriously the profession was taken, you know? And and obviously with with modernism and everything that comes in afterwards, those things changed. But, I mean, a lot of great artists that we look at in the 20th century, like Pablo Picasso, he went to academies. Salvador Dali, he went to academies to learn and to train. So I think you need a fundamental training as well. You need education. And you need to have... Everyone talks about like this creative influence or creative like ingenuity that you need to have. I don't think you need to make work that is like outlandishly different. Like you don't have to make something that's like, oh, you don't have, you can't go into work thinking, I got to make something that's never been seen before. I don't think that works anymore. I think you need to make work that is, that's honest. And we always used to say this in, in, um, in school. I had a wonderful teacher. His name was Tom Richards who always, he, he used to do our art history lectures. And he always used to say, facts become art through love. And I think that's that rings really, really true in what the duty of the artist must be when they have to make work that has to resonate with people. Because like I said, like when I'm painting a portrait, I'm not expecting, I'm not painting a portrait to make sure that the, the viewer receives this certain feeling from the por- the portrait the f- the the viewer should come to that conclusion because that that way they're interacting consciously and subconsciously with the work and i think that's what makes great work and i think that hopefully if that if that's true maybe i'll get somewhere with that but i mean yeah i I'd, I'd, I'd love to be i'll be straight up i'll be honest with you i'd love to be one of the great 21st century 21st century painters for either Canada or for the world, you know, mm-hmm. that'd be, that's a, a dream of mine. You know, I, I always say that I would, I would love to be in a history book. I'd love someone to read about Eric Drummond and how he worked and what he, what he made. But, um, I don't have a grand, I mean, I, I plan to work really, really hard to try and do it, but I, I don't have like a grand plan to be like, you know what, I'm going to make this kind of painting so that I get this kind of reaction from this news media outlet so that it becomes super famous. I don't, I don't want, I don't want any of that. I want to make work that I love to make. And I think that comes through making sure that there's quality and making sure that there's honesty. How do you feel about our immersion in a technological sense with our yeah. phones and TV and yeah. computers? How do you think that affects how people receive and perceive art? Oh, it affects it hugely. I mean, I, I remember talking about this with my my third year director. His name is Ramiro Sanchez, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had in my life. And he always said, because he was when he learned, it was like the '90s and the '80s, and we didn't have you know cell phones at our disposal, and the internet was a very young thing. And he's like, we didn't have these distractions, so even the way that we looked at things was different. You know, you, you we're constantly bombarded with in, imagery all the time. You know, whether it's advertising or whether it's media, things like that, right? Like we're constantly looking at images. So the way we see and the way that we receive information from images is so different from like 
something as far as like 20 years ago, which in the grand scheme of things, when we think about that versus like 500 years ago, how people saw things, it's insane. It's, it's so different. Like, I don't even think we can conceptualize how people that were working in the Renaissance or in the Baroque period would like look at something. I think it would be foreign to us based on what we interact with on a daily basis. Like if I, like I was saying this to you, I remember one time at work where I was like, if I brought my phone back in time and I showed it to like a Leonardo da Vinci and I was like, on this little thing, I can access any bit of information I want and any image or painting that I want. It would like, it would, he wouldn't be able to fathom it. It's insane. Like there's a little universe in my hand. And so I think even the way we look at paintings is so different the way we see them on phones versus when we see them in real life. I always tell people, you have to go see paintings in life because that's the only way for you to experience like how the medium or the surface of the painting reacts to your eye and you know even like how a frame interacts with the painting and or everything. scale. And the scale, yeah, yeah, for sure. There's some, there's paintings. I remember, best example, um, I remember looking at images of the Sistine Chapel in that Michelangelo book from my grandfather Mm. and then going to see it for the first time when I was 17. And like, I was like, it's a very sentimental thing because of my, like my relationship with my grandfather and then finally seeing it, Mm -hmm. I I started to cry because it was the, it's daunting. It's a, it's a ceiling, a 60, how big it's, it's two football fields long, the ceiling and it's covered in painted plaster that was designed and executed by one man. I mean, he had assistants and things like that. So he had help. Like, don't think that he just did it on his own, but it was his vision and he did this. And the painting is so vivid from 60 feet up. It looks like you can touch it with your hand. And it makes you realize that like our our capacity to see things and experience things on a visual level is constantly changing, but it never beats seeing a well-made painting in the flesh. And so I think with with technology, I think tech, I, I won't ever bash technology. I think technology has done so much for the world and it's done a lot of good for the world. But um, as technology develops, I think we have to be very aware about how we receive information and how we see information. And uh, yeah. That's yeah. That's what I that's what I got for that. I hope yeah. that was good enough. <laughs> Michelangelo had assistants. Yeah. So, what I thought is that he painted all of it. Right. But you're saying that other people painted it as well as him. Mm-hmm. But he designed the blueprint for what he wants to have. Yeah. So the so the Pope, the Pope commissioned him to paint the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling, on the advice of a rival of his. In an attempt, the rival was attempting to sabotage his reputation because Michelangelo wasn't, he didn't consider himself a painter. He had learned how to paint, but he didn't consider, he was a sculptor. Mm-hmm. So he took the commission and initially the commission was supposed to be 12 apostles, giant sized apostles across the ceiling. And Michelangelo wasn't really happy with the design. And he said, this isn't, this is boring. This is something that I wouldn't want to paint, which I can totally sympathize with because when you're given something that you have to paint and you don't want to do it, it's mm-hmm. agonizing. And um, so he came up with this new design of, you know, what is, what the Sistine Chapel is now, right? It's over 300 figures on the ceiling, which is insane. And so the Pope okayed it. He was like, all right. And obviously the Pope didn't expect it to take four years to do. But I mean, 
it was finished, but he had people working for him because the method that he painted in was called Buon Fresco. And Buon Fresco is painting into wet plaster. So it's a very complicated process and you have to be very efficient when you paint. You have to kind of chip away the initial layer of plaster that's already on the ceiling, reapply a fresh layer that would suit a day's work. So you're kind of puzzle piecing the whole painting together, which is so challenging because not only does he not have the ability to kind of step back and look at the scale and if there's any distortions, but you're not painting with any sort of sense of the whole. You're kind of just hoping these pieces are just, it just comes to fruition by the end of it. But he's a, he was an unbelievable draftsman and uh, a great thinker. So he was able to plan it out properly. But he needed assistance to mix plaster on the fly and to mix his pigments and paints on the fly and paint the kind of broader areas that the didn't require, yeah, like, like sky or Adam like, like, yeah, exactly. Like architecture, things like that. So that he could focus on like the figures and the more important focal areas. But he was very clever because he, he would fire his assistants and rehire new ones all the time. So there was no possible way of attribution. Hmm. It was just solely him. So like, he was also a bit of a, a shithead that way. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did it's, it. Yeah, he pushed the vision. Yo, he for designed sure. it. If he you were to, if you were to, to talk it. about like the percentage of where it was like 80% of it is his. And uh, and he wasn't a fresco. Like fresco itself is like its own art form. Like it's its own painting method. Like I learned to oil paint. Like people would go to school to learn how to fresco paint. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really challenging because you're working under the constraints of time and weather. Keep in mind, they didn't have like ventilation systems back then. So imagine working in like Italy gets cold. People think that Italy doesn't get, Italy gets cold in the winter. Imagine working in the winter, like with like these open windows and like candle smoke. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to do this massive work, you know, and he never laid on his back. That's, that's a myth as well. That's a huge, like. It was all that, standing. Yeah. He was standing up. straight up. So his actually, his, 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 his body changed huh. because of how much he, like there was a guy that on the BBC, I watched in a documentary about Michelangelo. He tried to do like a, a section like in the same method, painting the same way. And he needed a chiropractor every so often to, or a physiotherapist to realign his his neck and back because it's just so much. Looking up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's intense. It's very intense. <laughs> but when you're doing what you love like that. Yeah. It's well, that and like, when you think about it at that time, I think he knew that if he did this work and he did it right, he would have, it's, it's kind of like a... Um, it's a huge milestone in his career, you know, because he's a sculptor. Mm -hmm. and he, he paints this fresco. And not only that, but he, there's plenty of reasons why that fresco is revolutionary in terms of how it's designed and how he, you know, contorted the human body and started to change the way the human body could be positioned in paintings and his use of foreshortening and all that kind of stuff. He, he changed the game with that painting. It's, it's unbelievable. Raphael was working on the Pope's apartments, like basically like a block away. Mm -hmm. And he would come in and and it's debated whether or not they influenced each other or not. But I, I largely consider Raphael seeing the ceiling and being influenced to paint, you know, his figures in mm -hmm. the Pope's apartments later, mm -hmm. which is amazing. Coming back to the human body, yep. you mentioned recently that you're creating an attache. Attaché. An attaché. Is that the... Accroché. Accroché, yeah. There it is, yeah. Accroché. Attaché. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? 
Yeah, I know. I'm doing, I'm not creating an ecrochet. I'm, I'm doing a drawing of one for a friend of mine who's a chiropractor. And, uh, yeah, what did, what did you, what did you, what did you want to know about it? Well, well, um, so, uh, who was it? I, I, I had a note here. Michelangelo, yeah. Michelangelo, or Leonardo, Leonardo, he dissected cadavers yeah. to get a better understanding yeah. of uh, physiology and that influenced how oh, yeah, he can, yeah. you know, portray the, the human body. So you are working with an accroche. Yeah. Um, is that, so did, in terms of your schooling, did you spend time doing that? Or? Yeah, well, I didn't do, I didn't do the accroche program at my school specifically. So we do anatomy courses at our school. So we learn about, uh, it's, it's not like an anatomy, a traditional anatomy course in terms of like science. It's anatomy in terms of artistic anatomy, like understanding major boning points and insertions and or, uh, origins of muscles. And we learn all of that. And then we have the option later to take an ecrochet course, which is to sculpt the, like, the anatomical position of the human body, one half muscle and the other half the skeletal system. And uh, I didn't do that one, but I, I I studied anatomy all through the time that I was in Florence because it's hugely important to, I mean, making correct figurative work. And uh, so, yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing this drawing for my friend of mine and it's, it's kind of challenging because I have a model sit for like the lighting and the, the contour and understanding the structure. And then I have anatomical books to reference for the, the muscle fibers, the muscle fibers and, the, and everything, the, the striations and everything. And so, uh, with Leonardo, he, he used to dissect cadavers like, and that was hugely frowned upon. You, you didn't do that back then. Uh, it was sacrilege. And, uh, he used to dissect cadavers and, and uh, do uh, anatomical drawings. And those anatomical drawings are still used by doctors today because that's how accurate they were. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is unbelievable. But he was, Leonardo's interesting because he, he was, I, I, I talked about him briefly before with uh, a friend of mine, but he's, he wasn't, I don't consider, I consider Leonardo, an, like he was definitely an artist, but I consider him a great thinker before I consider him a great artist because he was very uh, curious about all facets of of life. I think he like he had he must have had some form of like ADHD or ADD because he was he was into everything. He was an inventor. Yeah, he was yeah. an inventor. He was an architect. He was a, a mathematician. He was a biologist. He was you know like everything, and and a phenomenal painter as well to boot. Right, this guy could do it all. But I think he was he's the way he drew suited what he was trying to observe. And so he drew really beautifully because I think he saw really beautifully. And so I think he, he's, he's an example of how beautifully we can think, not just how beautifully we can paint or how beautifully we can draw, but how splendid we can think. Like he has this drawing of, of a baby in a womb and the womb is opened up and the baby's just kind of like, like there to like mm -hmm. show like how Suspended. it would be. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, that's a phenomenal depiction of a baby in a womb instead of like the stereotypical like profile of like the womb and then the baby like drawn in and it's just yeah to think beautifully that's what Leonardo is I want to talk about your time in Florence so you sure. went to Florence for schooling yeah uh, why do you think that Florence was chosen for an art academy because the city is so artistic yeah so why why do you think the academy's there yeah um or do you feel the academy was put there as as a result of 
being a hub of art through the oh, Renaissance. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean the the tradition that the academy follows comes from the Renaissance, and it comes from. I mean, the first art academy in Florence was founded by Giorgio Vasari, and he was a Florentine, and he was a huge follower of, like, he was pretty much the biggest fanboy of Michelangelo that you will ever find. And um, subsequently, art schools after that followed suit. And Florence was, I mean, it's the cradle of the Renaissance. It's where it began. And I think when um, Daniel Graves founded the Florence Academy, Back in what was it ninety one? I think he founded it. I gotta, I gotta ask him again. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was, uh, I think he was looking to follow suit with that tradition. And I mean, the methods and the site size methods that we co- that we use are typically from the French academies. But the philosophies that we learn and the way that we observe life and the way that we translate nature is from is from Vasari's time. And um, I mean, the great thing about learning art and first of all, I was like, I was like, I was like a pig in shit when I was there. Cause like Mm -hmm. it was, it was, that was the kind of work that I love to begin with. Right. Like the Mannerist, the Renaissance, the Baroque. And it was, it's all there in Florence for you to see. So like you can walk out, out of your house and you go bike 10 minutes into the city center and you go bike by the, I used to bike by the Duomo every weekend, which is like, which is insane to think that I can say that, you know, like that's so cool. And I think when you're in a city that not only has that much art, but has architecture that is so aesthetically just magnificent, I think is uh, you're, you're, you're nothing but inspired. You're just, you're just, you constantly want to work. And I think that that's such an advantage that that Academy has by being in Florence. It has other branches. It has, one in Sweden and one in New York. Mm-hmm. And I think New York would be a cool place to work too. Cause I think New York is just like, it's got that energy, you know, like it has, it's seen so much as a city as well. And it's just, it's got every sort of flavor of art that you need, which I think would be really cool. But Florence was nice because it was just, you know, you're taken back in time when you're there and uh, working there was an absolute joy. I miss it a lot. Do you feel like you experienced all there is to experience in Florence? No, or, no way. <laughs> so in terms of the sightseeing that you did yeah. while you were there, like yeah. did you uh in between your studies go out and and check out I mean you saw the Sixteen Chapel. Yeah. Um, but uh there's a lot of sights to see art from an artistic standpoint. Yeah. Did you prioritize going to check out the city? Oh, absolutely. In my first year for sure, because um I think as I went through the years, the workload and and what I wanted to do with my work, it was more. So I was in the studio more as I as I went on. But in my first year, I was I think I was in a museum every weekend, or I was out in the in the piazzas, sketching or drawing people walking by or sketching statues and things like that. Um, I mean, there's always the what's what's funny about living in in Florence for three years is that you start to understand how because it's a huge tourist hub. You start to understand the the nature of when to go see things and when not to go see things based on like the volume of people that are in the city. And so like you would assume I went to the Uffizi a lot, but in comparison I went to Palazzo Pitti more because Palazzo Pitti had more it has like more paintings that I would want to look at. And also it wasn't nearly as busy as uh the Uffizi. 
Um, I remember going to Casa Buonarroti, which is Michelangelo's. It's Michelangelo's house, but it's it's a house that is his family inherited or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, going to see all of his like his work there, and going to the Academia to see David and things like that. And it was uh, we went as a class too with with our teachers. They would take us. We're gonna go look at paintings today because you you have to go look at paintings in order to see how these kinds of paintings are are done and finished. You know, um, it it helps so much. So yeah, I, I'm definitely a lot of time to go go see things in the city, but I also a lot of times for for me to just experience the city. You know, just to go have a bite to eat with friends and go out and have a couple of drinks at the pub or anything like that. They have this wonderful thing at, in December where they have a huge Christmas market in, you know, Piazza Santa Croce. And uh, we always used to go there and just like have have malt wine and, you know, and like there would be like all these vendors and like different food and everything like that. And I mean, it was it's probably a super touristy thing to the locals there to do that. Yeah. But I mean, it was such an enjoyable thing for all of us to come together to do that. And that was another, that's when, you know, I hearken back to the sense of community that's there it's unbelievable like can you can you it's it's hard to fathom especially with something as niche as this like f- academic figurative art i'm a canadian and then finding that community you know and being a part of that that like learning experience with everyone it was it's uh it was the best decision to to go there i ever made for sure i imagine being a city that is so full of art in the architecture that surrounds you yeah um that there's a lot of street art going on yeah graffiti there's graffiti art there yeah it's it's kind of yeah it's a, it's a huge there's graffiti art there's like public artists um i mean a lot of the public artists unfortunately are kind of like there to sell to tourists um but there's a lot of graffiti like a lot of tagging and things like that everywhere which like Depending on your taste, whether you like it or not, I mean, it's there. How does the city feel about the graffiti? I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't see, I don't see people kind of trying to wash it off or anything like that. But uh, there are some places where you kind of don't need it, like near the city center. I feel like you don't need to tag over there. That's like really the historic hub, and like the older buildings are there, and that's what people come across the world to see. But I mean, there's some beautiful tagging in like some of the kind of outer areas that is really cool to see. Um, there's uh, there's really like clever street art too that they like these like stickers that people put on like signs. Like there's these road signs that have like the the T like cross section mm-hmm. for like an intersection. Mm-hmm. And there's people that put like a sticker of like Jesus hanging oh. from like the T <laughs> which is really like really cool and really clever. So yeah, no, there's, uh, there's definitely that culture that exists for sure. I think there too, like going out and like talking to people, people are more uh, kind of privy to talk about art there too, because they're so, in, they're so, they're drowning in it there. Yeah, you know? they're entrenched. In yeah, it. exactly. So like they're way more, like you could go to a bar and you could talk to somebody about art, whereas I find I can't do that here. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Like it depends on the cir- circumstance, but yeah. I want to touch on something that you've discovered about yourself mm. through pursuing art oh, man. as a hobby because are for for example are you career expre- that too <laughs> are you expressing yourself through your art if you're feeling angry or upset do you create art that way mm. um i've learned i think i like ugh, god 
there's so many things that you can learn about yourself through so many different facets in your life. But I think, yeah, art has revealed the most. Um, I didn't think before going to Florence, I'd be capable of, of making like this kind of, like, I mean, you go there to learn this kind of work and you think you're like, yeah, I'm going to go learn how to make, but I didn't think that the path that it would lead me on would lead me to where I am now. And I think, um, I never, I, I didn't think I would rise to that kind of challenge. And when I, when I went there, it was very daunting, but then I just kept loving it more and I wanted to do more of it and just keep going. And, you know, you get really kind of, you get kind of fired up about it. You know, I, I had this, I had one of my best friends to this date is the, the guy that I lived where, there with for three years. His name's Sandeep and he's, he's from India and he's a sculptor. And I remember we would come back home from a day of school and we would just keep talking about it. And that was something that I never thought I would ever have. Not only with somebody else, but with like myself. I didn't think that I would come home from a day of work. You know, like you, 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 go, you go to work, you do your nine to five and mm-hmm. you come home and you're just exhausted and you don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that. We, we came home after like a 10 hour day and we'd be like, we'd be fired up talking about what we learned and what we're doing. And it was like, I never thought I'd ever be like that. And I like, I was definitely passionate about art and definitely passionate about old art, but I never thought I would be just like yapping off like that all the time and just urging and itching to be back in the studio constantly. Like there's nights that I didn't sleep because I was just like, I was thinking about my work constantly just being like, I need to go back in and do this. I need to go back in and fix that. Maybe try this, maybe try that, you know? And I w- before you know it, it's 6am and I got to get back, back up and go to school, you know? And it's, that was something that was very revealing to me because I, I, I like in high school, I wasn't like an outstanding student, you know? I was averaging maybe in the 80s, which was like, it's good. But I mean, like, I wasn't like a 90s average mm. student. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I never did my homework. You know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the greatest, uh, like, I was, a, I was just another kid. Like, I love to draw. That's what I, that's what it was. And with university, in my second year of university, I went through, uh, I went through depression. And I dropped out and I, 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 came back to London to be with my family. And that's when I started going to the gym. And I think that's the other area of my life that I've, I found revealed a lot about myself is that the gym revealed that a lot about me too, but that how hard I'm willing to work for something that I want is something that I'm starting to discover about myself and how capable I think I can be about what I want to achieve. Um, with the things that I've done in school, I was, you know, I, I achieved a lot, I think, while I was at while I was in Florence. And I think I did really well. And it just made me want more for myself and demand the absolute best for myself. And I have I have role models that now that I look to, and I, and I, I they were my role models as a kid, but I, I'm starting to understand why they're my role models now. In in both my family and both artistically, in sports, I have role models. You know, I love Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was my my hero when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to understand why I loved him because he just, he, he would bleed on the court to win, you know? And he would, he was insatiable with his desire to be successful and to succeed in whatever he was doing and to do 
the best he could. You can think whatever you want with him. I mean, like he gambled, he drank, blah, blah, blah. But when it came down to entering and getting on the court, he was a lion, you know? And I think I don't see that with art necessarily, but I see that wanting to be, make the best work that I can. You have to think that way as well. You have to be, you have to be very critical with yourself and you have to be very, very tenacious and hungry for making work and being self-motivated. And I think that was something that I really discovered while I was in Florence was that I'm, I, I really want this, you know, I really want to be a great seminal artist and uh, no less than that. I want to take a little break and have, yeah. have you take a look, to, <laughs> look at, at some pieces of art. <laughs> All right. All right. So what I have here, it's a brand new Looking phone. at a painting still, still on a figuring, phone. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of technology. Can't capture the, uh... <laughs> the, the feeling of looking at it in life. Yeah. All right. Take a look at this guy there. Is that a Pollock or is that not a Pollock? Oh, geez. You're, you're putting me out of my comfort zone by doing this. Because you're not that into abstract. No. No. I mean, I've read about Pollock a bit, but I, and I've read about like, like who he was as a person. It's really tragic, but the painting, is it a Pollock or is it not a Pollock? I don't think this is. No? No. Why is that? It's hard to describe, but I feel like Pollock, like the 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 spontaneousness of it is definitely like it reminds me of Pollock, but I don't think it is a Pollock because it's just so dense. Like Pollock's work is very dense, but it's like this is like it's just a touch too dense for me. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's a Pollock? It's not a Pollock. No. No, it's wow. an imitation. Wow. Wow. I really feel good about myself now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought the same thing too when I saw it. I'm like, that is dance because like oh I, it's I just really like there's just so much going on and I, I just don't like Pollock Pollock knew when to like leave space and when to put like to fill things like I don't know there's it's just like this is just so much going on right now and it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel as like there was an organized chaos a bit to Pollock mm -hmm. as much as his 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 working method was very uh, spontaneous he was he he knew what he was doing. Like everyone, everyone likes to think that oh, he was you know this tra. He his his life story was very tragic, but he he was very sensible and aesthetic with how things should look. So I think with that, like it's close. But I, yeah, I got I got that feeling. I was it's just like this. The more you look at it, the more it, it just doesn't sit. I find. I want to show you something else. Sure. This is a picture of a bunch of different kinds of light bulbs. Okay. Um, and I found it real interesting because of the way um, the shadows are, are depicted. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's really a painting of, of like nothing. Yeah, it's light bulbs. Crazy. It's just light yeah. bulbs. But, but what do you think about that from an artistic perspective? I mean, if I can be honest, it's light bulbs. Yeah. I don't, I'm not, I don't connect with light bulbs. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? But I can see aesthetically like in terms of how they're organizing the negative spaces between everything. and it's a lot of negative it's, space. It's yeah. very, it's very organized and it's, there's a meticulousness in how things are spaced out between each other. Technically speaking, the ac application of paint and maybe the, the way things are drawn aren't quite the strongest. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit wonky 
but uh, no, I, uh, I appreciate the, the composition is, is interesting. It's really well thought out. I'll show you now. <laughs> Are you going to like trick me and be like, just kidding. I did that. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Get out of my studio. Yeah. Actually, there's, um, there's a, a painting that I did do up yeah. a, uh, above my dining room table there. I'll show you. Okay. <laughs> just get your uh, idea. Um, here, this is an album cover by one of our artists, uh, our artists, I, uh, on the record label that I have, one, yeah. of, one of the artists uh, released an album. Check that out and, and kind of critique it artistically. What do you think of mm-hmm. that? Dynamic High. What's going on there? This is Dynamic High's album, Unbreakable. Okay. The album cover for that. Yeah. This is painted? No. Okay. Photoshopped. Photoshopped. But um, art is art. Yeah. What do you feel? I'm squinting. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm squinting right now because that's how we kind of compress shapes and everything like that. Um, It's nice. It's structured. It's it's very uh, symmetrical, which is nice. I think that's always appealing. I don't know if I would have used as as I want. I don't think I would have kept it so monochromatic in terms of uh, the color palette. But I understand why. I like the light shining between his neck and his shoulders. That's interesting. Oh, the lens flare. Yeah, the there. lens flare there. That's a good touch. But um, the edges along the the figure, I think I wouldn't have made so saturated. I guess mm-hmm. with orange. Mm-hmm. But I think aesthetically, it's it's nice. Is that the first? Is that your first? Is that their first album? It's it's his first album, yeah. Yeah. It's a also like album covers don't really matter too much. They're just no, yeah, yeah. yeah. This little thing. It's to, subjective, it's, man. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> art, man. <laughs> oh my god, people say that. Okay, so I I found something real interesting when I was doing research. Yep. Um, and I I'm not sure how to pronounce this word. Go ahead. Sfumato. 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 You've been reading about Leonardo. I have been yeah. le- reading about Leonardo. So so what do you know about that? Sfumato is a painting technique that he largely pioneered. And it's uh it it, it essentially it correlates to the term uh fumo in Italian, which means smoke. And uh it's essentially to to say that the image has a smoky or hazy feel to it. And that doesn't mean that it looks like you're looking through smoke at the image. It means that the transitions between values are so seamless that it looks like it's kind of been glazed over so effortlessly with kind of a smoky okay. feel. And so Leonardo Leonardo pioneers this because it's 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 an incredible technical technique. Technical technique. Wow. <laughs> Jesus. It's an incredible technique. Um, that Leonardo had where he was so good with a brush that like he was his ability to 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 blend values and make transitions were so seamless and his ability to handle shadow edges and yeah he was it was it looks everything looks quite seamless with each other so when I mean like if you to provide an example if you look like for everyone that can like that knows of Leonardo he painted the Mona Lisa right and so if you look at the the way that Mona Lisa's face looks, uh, the the relationship between dark to light and how those all the values between that that changes like seamlessly from one form to the other, and he still holds the integrity of like the structure and the anatomy beneath the surface as well, which is phenomenal. He was he was uh, I think my favorite like the Mona Lisa itself, the portrait. I'm not I don't go crazy over, but the hands in that painting are just mm. absolutely sublime. Everybody focuses on the face. Yeah, the hands on that painting are just, the, like he has the one overlapping the other and because he's so good at drawing and knowing structure, 
he even like is able to articulate like the the bulging of the form between the thumb and the index finger when you press them together over a surface. So like when you have your hand resting over your arm like that, the way that that form kind of bulges up, I it's know. unbelievable. When you go and look at that painting again, look at it. It's so good. Wow. Like, he's really, really good. Yeah. And is that something that you've practiced? <laughs> uh, yeah, like we try to. I mean, hands, hands are, if you're painting a portrait with hands, Another thing about that portrait too is that the hands don't dominate the the focus is very much on the on the face, right? When you're painting a portrait with hands, it's the first thing that you have to focus on is making sure that the structure it works. Uh, people tend to make either hands way too big or way too small, and you usually initially when you're painting you want to make them a bit too big because if you make them too small, it's really hard to change, mm. and also it makes it just really looks off when people's hands are too small in a painting. Uh, more so than when they're too big. Um, and so the hands, hands are tricky when you're painting a portrait because there's a lot of information. When you look at anything, when your eye looks at anything, it tends to just focus on detail. It wants to find details. And so we as artists have to translate and not put everything that we see down on the on the canvas or else it'll dominate what your eye looks at. And that comes through values, detail, color, edges, everything. Um, so hands have to be quite simplified and effectively painted so that structurally they make sense, beautifully articulate because hands are such an expressive part of like ourselves. We, we usually, as much as we make the stereotype joke of the Italians talking with their hands and everything, mm -hmm. everyone talks with their hands. Everyone gestures with their hands. Um, if you look at Leonardo's painting of the last supper and you look at how, the hands are articulated. Those are Italian people. Like there's guys going like this and like <laughs> gesturing this way, you know, like those are guys that, and he literally did this to, to study for that painting. He would go on the street and he would draw people talking to each other so that he would get the dynamic of people being at a dinner table. And so like all these people are gesturing with their hands and the hands actually guide your eye through the painting. Mm. It's phenomenal. And when you're painting a portrait with hands, you don't want everything you want the hands to be the secondary focus aside from the face. And so when you look at it, like a painting by a really great portrait artist is John Singer Sargent. And he was, he was born in Florence, but he was, he's, he's American. And his ability to paint, he's a very brushy painter. So you see a lot of the strokes and well, he wants you to see all the strokes. He's actually a very meticulous painter. He just comes across, his aesthetic allowed him to, look the other way but um the way he painted hands was is insane like some of the hands that he would paint there's it looked like it was just a couple marks and it's it's just a hand and your eye recognizes it mm. as a hand and it puts it together and again that's another form of conversation in art right it's when your eye puts things together like that it's uh, like it's playing great. with space like we've all seen the the picture where there's like just angles that outline the mm. corners of a triangle and, and our mind says that's triangle right exactly there. Yeah. yeah or like when you draw when you first learn to draw in perspective right and you draw like a pyramid and it's i mean you're drawing lines on a 2d surface but it like your eye puts it together as like oh wait this thing has multiple sides um that happens even in 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 line in the way that we kind of we don't have to draw every line that we see or every contour that we see. Your eye can put it together. So if I'm like, let's say I'm drawing the fold of your eyelid 
and I'll put like one indication here and then one indication here, your eye will put it together and be like, oh, and then that's something as much as that sounds really like small and kind of like quaint, it's a beautiful sensation for your eye to experience because you're interacting with the painting at that point. It's not just like everyone thinks that figurative art is just this kind of, oh, it's just people. You're just painting people. It's just, you know, it's like, no, like your your eye, when you look at really good figurative art from like the 19th century and before, and even afterwards, there's some great figurative artists in the 20th century too. If you're, they're not giving you everything that you see, you know? So your your mind is doing a lot of the work putting the image together. The artist is just giving you the tools to do it mm-hmm. by provi- like providing the image. And it's it, it's... It's beautiful because it's another way, like in a way, it's another way that humans are relating and socializing with each other because we relate to each other the most out of any other creature on the planet. Like we socialize with each other so Mm -hmm. much. We're Mm -hmm. social creatures. And so when you see paintings of people and your eye is actively experiencing these little kind of sensations as it's looking through, you feel like you're getting to know a person, which is cool. Mm -hmm. I think that's phenomenal. So... I want you to try to outline the steps for developing the skill of oh, artistry. <laughs> if see, I I am no good at drawing or painting or I'm not I'm not good at at doing art. Yeah. Are you gonna, I was going to say like everybody can draw. Not everybody can draw well. Draw well. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean my hearts when I draw a heart shape, yeah. the one side looks like Always a looks seven, like the yeah. other side looks but yeah. <laughs> but uh, what would be the steps to practice? Um, say a month on, on each step. How mm. how could somebody start practicing systematically to become better at better at drawing? Drawing, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like anything you do, right? You just have to keep at it. Like, how do you get better at pianos? You keep practicing your scales. But you practice scales and not practicing whole songs, right? So what would so the equivalent with, be? With with drawing for us, we I mean, it's hard for like the everyday folk to do this because like you can't just go and get a model to sit for you and you know, is you do pencil drawings. And my teachers would always say the pencil drawings, the better you get at pencil drawing, the better you get at painting because they correlate. And um, pencil drawing, the way we do pencil drawing is because pencils can only go so dark when you apply them and then the paper starts getting shiny Mm -hmm. with like graphite and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. It means that you have to work in a less, in a limited value range. You have to kind of limit what you're seeing. So you focus on the contour and the shadow line that you see in a person. You usually have single source lighting. So like how you're lit right now, I can see like the outline of your head and the shadow that runs Mm -hmm. along your face. And so practicing that using straight lines to block in first and then breaking those lines down to be more specific, that's how you start. And then you add a general value to compress all the dark and compress all the light. So the light you would leave on like a white piece of paper Mm -hmm. and then you would give a single value dark value to the shadow not like really dark just like a just kind of fill it in but and then all, all the shadows would be the same one value one, yeah. yeah because when you look when i look into the shadow i see all these different things but in order for us to properly explain form and how form works through light in the context of pencil drawing i have to compress those values so there's no way and this is like a whole other topic 
But there's no way that we as people can look at nature and copy every single value that we see through either drawing or painting, especially through drawing because it's black and white, mm-hmm. but through painting. There's no way that I can go on my palette and mix up every single kind of green that I see in, in nature. It's impossible. And so when I'm painting you or I'm drawing you, I have to compress values in order to turn form and give myself a range that I can explain enough, but not too much so that the image doesn't become noisy, but it still is wholesome. And so pencil drawing forces you into that box where you're like, I only have these values, really limited values. How well can I articulate Josh's face using just that? And that's why pencil drawing is the best. Because then once you get to painting, you're just like, oh, I have more at my disposal. More tools. And then you, you, you'll intuitively do them. But painting is also, it's, it's, it's very, it's equally challenging in its own right because you're painting with liquid and you're the, the, the amount that you have, have at your disposal while you have more at your disposal, the challenges are also more. So like you'll always, the best, like this is a great indication for anybody in any discipline. When you meet somebody, the more they know about something and the less entitled they are, that means they're very smart because they know the more you learn about something, the more difficult it becomes. Picasso has this famous line where he's like, painting was easy when I was a child or something like that. Okay. It, Painting's easier when you don't know how to paint. <laughs> he says something like that. And it's true because you're just doing it. You're not conscious of, I have to make sure that that edge isn't too sharp so that it doesn't detract away from like that edge. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's so many more variables that start to arise when you start painting because you're not only handling values, you're handling edges, you're handling the structure of the drawing, you're handling chroma now. Color is its own universe as well when you start handling paint. And so, uh, like, your values, you still have to compress your shadows and add the right amount of variety in the light so that things are... Like, that's why paintings look like paintings too, you know, like a Rembrandt, like when you look at a Rembrandt portrait, it's not like it's a photo. It's a painting of a person. It's a translation. It's not a factual, like I'm painting every pore, I'm doing every, no, because that's just noise, right? That's like a really good guitar solo, but it's not a song. Right. You know what I mean? It's not a symphony. Right. Um, and this, this kind of gets into the topic of like how people feel about hyperrealism. And like people that take like, they take like these HD photos and they blow them up and then they make these giant drawings of like people with like, and you see every nose hair and every pore and their skin and things like that. That is like, that's its own art form for sure. I agree. But for me, there's no conscious choice when you're drawing like that. You're just going one for one. You're not saying, if I do this shape here, will that articulate your your zygomat? your zygomatic bone properly? Or will, if I articulate this shadow edge, how, what kind of effect will that give me? Is that something that I want to represent in my painting? You know, us as artists, our role is, is to translate nature in what we think is the most beautiful way. <clears throat> it's not one for one. I'm not copying. I'm not a printer, you know? Mm. Um, my, my teacher <laughs> always used to say, you know, if you're trying to go one for one with everything, you're running 5,000 miles in the wrong direction. And okay. Yeah. And then 
he's like, you have to actively let your eye experience things and, you know, and squint so that you can, like when you squint, you compress things. The lights become more vivid. The shadows become darker, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and paint. You're not an impressionist painter, but you're painting the impression in a way. And that's something that allows the viewer to experience and be an active participant when looking at paintings. So it's not to say that like painting from photos is bad or like, you know, being a hyperrealist is bad. It's not about that. It's just about in the end, what is the image? How does the image speak? You know? Is that why you attach more to realism as opposed to abstract? Oh yeah, for sure. I find like it's, it's just more relatable for me. I like looking at paintings of things. Like I like looking at paintings of landscapes and paintings of people because I'm curious about people. Like I love, you know, like when you go to the bar and you, you people watch. Yeah. Everyone loves yeah. people watching, right? Because we love watching how people behave. And I think that came from my brother. My brother is autistic. And so growing up with a brother that's autistic and seeing how he behaves in contrast to how, you know, how me or you behave, it's very different. Daniel grows up without any preconceived notions of like, this is how, you know, society wants us to behave and this is how I'm going to speak to you. And this is, no, mm-hmm. everything is very honest with Daniel. It's face value. And it comes through emotion and it comes through feeling. And so I think that's why I'm so curious as to why I like observing people in and painting people is I attribute it to him. And it's it's cool when I've had people, like when people, like people come and sit for me, they're, they'll be like, how do you want me to sit? I'm just like, just sit, just sit how you would sit you know, or like maybe lean over or like this or that, you know, like the odd thing, right? To suit a composition. But I want them to be themselves because then that'll come through in how I see them and how I paint them. And that's, that way when I, like when I have a painting called Miriam, it's Miriam. It's not like Miriam get into this pose and like really, yeah, exactly. You know, like forced like Adonis, like (laughs) ridiculous like poses like that. It's like, no, just sit, be yourself. I had a great conversation with a a student, like we were both students at the time. Uh, He was a term ahead of me. His name's Romer. He's an unbelievable painter, phenomenal. And he said to me one time, he turned to me, he's like, you know, sometimes when people just sit in a chair, that tells you everything they need, you need to know about them than just having them like speak to you or things like that. And we're always encouraged when we're painting somebody to, to speak with them. That way you get to know them and you get to see how their face works when they're speaking. And it comes through, like, the more you know about somebody, the more you want to paint them and the psychological factor behind it. But he's so true in in terms of if you watch somebody sit down in a chair, how they sit is so true to, like, how they are and what kind of person they are. It's really interesting. So he was, he was we had a good back and forth about that, but it, it it's... Um, yeah, no, figurative work is just something that I'll never, I don't think I'll ever see myself deterring from figurative work, especially portraits and, and people's faces. And I just find, I see so much in people's faces that I find so interesting. So, yeah. Do you have any events coming up? Uh, okay, so I'm teaching a workshop in January, six-week workshop, uh, teaching people how to draw the figure from life. And I think that'll be done in charcoal. I'm still I'm still figuring that out with the gallery that I'm working with. And then uh, a solo exhibition, hopefully, I'd like to do it in March, but I'm thinking it'll be in May. And that'll be my first ever solo exhibition in London. How do you organize something like that? 
Well, I'm doing an art residency at the Arts Project downtown on uh, Dundas. And Dundas right now is an absolute travesty right now. It's just under construction. And mm -hmm. also with like all the problems that downtown has right now. But uh, I have a studio. That's where my studio space is. And the, the first floor of the Arts Project is a gallery. And that's where I did my group exhibition with uh, the other art artists in residency there. Okay. And so... Uh, yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be put in contact with them through a good friend of mine, and uh, I was able to get an art residency. And I moved in in about September, late September, I think, was when the studio was finally finished. And um, and so I'm affiliated with them, but I'm I mean I, I work with I would love I can and I probably will work with other galleries in the city, uh, depending on what they need and what what I can provide for them. Um, Right now, I have a couple paintings being shipped. I think it's like six paintings being shipped from Florence. And so I'm slowly building up enough to do a solo exhibition uh, here in London. You're having six paintings shipped from Florence? Yeah. That you did and they're over in, there? In Florence, yeah. I finished okay. them there. And so I had to wait for the oil to cure and before they can be handled. And so, right. uh, yeah, it, that usually at minimum, it would be... Usually you go when they're touch dry, and that's ideally three to six months, depending on the type of oil that you use. But then uh, you want to wait before varnishing for about, at minimum, six months on a painting. Uh, just because uh, you want all the layers to be sit properly so that there's no cracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a long process. Yeah. <laughs> People don't get it, get that either. Like they're, they're just like, oh, you're just going to, I'll sit for you and you just do a painting. It's like, no, no, no. It takes me months to do a painting. And that's the painting of it. And then it's got to dry for like X amount of time, right? So your studio is full of just drying crap. paintings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just stuff everywhere. Yeah. I have, I have a bunch of drawings hanging on the wall. I have paintings that are framed that are finished that are just on, I need to hang them up. And then. I have a couple buyers coming in to like see and look and and pick stuff out and yeah it's it's a lot and then um, I ha also have like all my materials that I, I have in there as well because I, I hand stretch my canvases I prep them all that kind of stuff so how do you find buyers uh self-promotion so luckily I, I I worked really hard on making sure my Instagram had a had, a, had like a good reach and then uh, I have my own website uh, I'm making business cards and then uh, who I connect with in the city. So luckily, working with TAP, the Arts Project, mm -hmm. I'm I can be like I can connect with other galleries because they're connected with other galleries, and I'm connected with, you know, people come in to the uh, to the gallery and they come and see my work hanging on the wall. They can come to the studio. They can you know, so it's a lot of self promotion, and it's 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 the hardest part of the job. I think is is getting out there and trying to like sell your work. Um, but it's also really rewarding when you do. Uh, I think the easiest part of being an artist is painting. <laughs> uh, and even that, that's not easy. Uh, painting is so challenging. But um, yeah, it's, 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 I'm essentially growing my own business here. Um, I'm going to be going back in, uh, I'm going to Dis Barcelona in December because I have uh, a painting that's being hung in a museum there as part of a, a group exhibition. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it's going to be moved to Sotheby in New York next July, which is the place where Banksy sold his, wow. his painting, which I'm super excited about. And um, 
I'm going to be visiting Florence as well. Uh, just to, since you're over there, yeah, since yeah. I'm over there, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I know that city is going to be a part of my life for, for in the future. So yeah, I can't wait. In terms of the classes that you took, you mentioned that you guys focused on some elements of anatomy. Yeah. Um, did you look at, um, I don't want to say math, but like the golden ratio, uh, considering proportions and stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't, like we learned about it. We didn't necessarily, like it wasn't like we had a class where we're like, okay, we're, today we're going to talk about the golden ratio. Um, it was more we learned compositional fundamentals, composition fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So when you're setting up a still life or when you're setting up a portrait, how spacing should work, how much room you should have on each end of the canvas. Uh, if you're painting a still life, how much variety in terms of negative space, in terms of objects, in terms of values you should have to make an image. Because there are canons to this where, you know, you if you have a lot of dark, then you should have a medium amount of gray and then a really nice bright white, like in terms of like greater value schemes and you design accordingly. And then understanding philosophies of like tension between objects. So like an object that is re- like objects that are really close to each other but aren't quite touching, like it provides a lot of tension to the eye. Mm-hmm. Or like not having objects in your still life that are all the same height, you know, because then that's not natural. That's very forced. Uh, no tangents either. You don't want objects that like line up behind each other, like exactly aligned. Because then again, that looks forced and that's not aesthetically pleasing as well. Uh, so we learn all these things and, you know, like obviously like pyramidal compositions are very aesthetically pleasing and um, how you crop a painting properly in terms of how much space you want in this corner or that corner or outside of the objects you've chosen or outside of, you know, the parameters of the portrait. You know, if, you, if you're painting a portrait and she's at eye level, you don't want a ton of space above her head because then it just looks awkward. Whereas mm-hmm. like if you lower the space of the canvas closer to her head, it elevates her and it or him and it looks like they're more prominent in a position of authority. So these things like you have to consider all the time when you're designing a painting. Um, it's the same thing uh, if you have somebody sitting a bit lower, you know, that's a very kind of diminutive perspective. If you're looking down at somebody through a painting, either they're kind of, either it's psychological because you're looking through the the cranium mm-hmm. or if they're younger it looks like they're you know kind of being disciplined like a small child right so these are all things that you have to really consider like the difference and this might stray on a weird line but the difference between painting a man and a woman right like you don't accentuate like aging features on a woman especially mm-hmm. if she's young like you don't paint the crease in the nose as prominent or like the creases in the eye because mm-hmm. it's going to make her look older Right. Whereas like a man, the more, not necessarily the more detail, but like you can afford to do those if he wants to be represented as an authority. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really interesting. And it's not to say that when like, I'm not, I'm not going to get into, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get into that kind of area, thing, but no. like, yeah, exactly. But no, like, I mean, these are things to consider when you're painting. Like if somebody wants to be painted, they want to look good. Right. So like, when you're painting people, you can't exaggerate or like paint every, again, you can't paint everything you see because it can be detrimental. So you have to be very considerate. Yeah. So we learned, we learned about the golden ratio, but we didn't learn like 
make sure the golden ratio is working in this painting, you know? <laughs> Measure the distance. Yeah, exactly. So we didn't, we didn't ever, we, it wasn't like that. That's yeah. funny. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, super cool. What is your social media so that people can start oh, following Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so my Instagram is at eric.j.drummond. And my website is, there's no www. It's just ericjdrummond.com. And then uh, my Facebook is Eric J. Drummond Artist. So yeah, you can catch me there. Um, and in March or May for your yeah, solo 2020 exhibition. 2020 is my solo <laughs> exhibition. I'll make sure to promote the hell out of that for sure. Yeah. But I'm super excited about it. And uh, no, I'm super grateful that you had me on. This is awesome. I've yeah. never had this experience before. It's cool. Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun just yeah. sitting down chatting, chatting yeah, with people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good I to hope you. I did well. Yeah, you, you were great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. We'll, we'll, end, we'll replay it and we'll it turns out I played. <laughs> I said something really controversial. <laughs> what are you they, talking about? Yeah. <laughs> this guy doesn't know shit. Yeah, yeah well, we'll see. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. It was great. This has been People of Passion. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Eric for sharing his passion with us. Please check out Eric on social media and if you found value in this episode, please share it with others to help us grow. Follow us for future episodes and always follow your passions. Until next time.